0: You know, it's interesting, we sing that freedom is here. Why is freedom here? Freedom is here because Christ is here. And I thought that as we were worshiping, but I thought that as well when our, when our teachers and faculty and staff gathered up here. I want to tell you, Christ is in this church, and He's in that school in a remarkable way in this season of time, and I am so thankful for that. You know, one of the things that we didn't get to mention about our school is that we've been shattering our enrollment records. Like, we haven't just exceeded them by a little... We've exceeded them massively, and I want to thank the teachers and the faculty and the staff for that, because that is a testimony to God's work in you. So thank you. Really appreciate you guys. You guys are doing and living out the kind of stuff that we've been talking about living out all year long. What are we talking about when we talk about life as mission? We're talking about what does it look like, in some sense, to live as one who has been made free by Jesus? made free, not just from our sin, but from everything and anyone other than him. So today, as we continue with our study of the book of Acts, and also with our development of that idea that we're using the book of Acts really as the vehicle by which to do that, we come today to Acts chapter 21, and really to most of Acts chapter 22. That's where we're going to zero in, and it's where we're going to learn today that this mission that we're on, and what's the mission? I know that many of you can say it, but let me explain it again. It's a mission of laying down our lives. Our mission is one of sacrifice, personal. It's one of self-denial, like me denying me. It's one of death in which I die to the life that I would construct for me, that I would pursue for me, and that I in my wisdom, and we'll just put that in quotes, okay, would take out my little Sharpie pen and my little label and I'd go, true life, this is what it looks like and this is what I'm chasing. No, it's me waking up every day and saying, I'm going to die to that, and I'm going to give way to a greater wisdom, to a greater life, to that which my Savior who died for me, sacrifice, self-denial, and literal, physical death, that he might purchase me. That he might make me his own, okay, to the life that he has designed for me, that he has laid out for me. A life, by the way, in which I walk with him and come to know him. It is a life in which I'm laying my life down that I might take up him. It's not a bad exchange. So the mission is one where we lay our life down to do what? To take the gospel mercies of Jesus to the world. And you're like, okay, that's kind of amorphous. What does that mean? Let's make it concrete. Water, food, clothing, medicine, education, shelter. Meeting the physical needs of a physically needy world at our expense. The mission is to lay our lives down, to take the gospel mercies of Jesus and, and it's an and, the gospel message of Jesus. If we don't do this, we have utterly failed, which is a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the world, starting in our homes and offices and schools and wherever it is that we go and wherever it is the Lord leads us to. What we're going to see today as we reenter this study is that that mission of sacrifice, self-denial, and dying to ourselves involves some suffering. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? And so as a result, if we're really going to live this life of mission, well, then it's going to take courage. And I'm going to give you some examples. If you are going to lovingly, humbly, winsomely, openly, clearly take a stand for Jesus in your family, in your school, in the dormitory that you move into... In your office, in your social circle, if you're going to do that, you're going to sacrifice some things. You're going to sacrifice the way that you might rather be understood. The way that you might rather be seen. The the inclusion that you're now excluded from. But you'd love to have. You're going to take your name, and name is a big deal today, I think. And you're going to sacrifice it, at least in the eyes of some. And they're suffering in that. There's a denial in that of yourself. There's sacrifice and a dying to how you'd really like to be seen. Isn't there? Takes courage. And I want to add one other thing I think it's in those sacrifices that you meet Jesus most uniquely. It's interesting to me that Jesus comes to us and he makes this statement, and I'll say it in the King James, it will be very familiar to you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How many of you heard that? Okay. In what context does he say it? Go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded of you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. There is sacrifice, but in the sacrifices we find Christ in a nearness that, well, is quite wondrous. But it's still hard and it takes courage. When you make the commitment to worship God with your wealth, when you and your husband or your wife sit down and you say, all right, we've got to like one finger at a time begin to take our Hands off of this and realize it came from God. It's for God. It actually belongs to Him. And He calls us for our own spiritual good and the good of the world to worship Him with it, to lay it at His disposal, to do things like tithing and just be sensitive or learn to be sensitive to His voice when He comes to you and says, Hey, you know that employee of yours? There needs to be some help going on there. You know that family in the church? Why don't you help them out? That guy at Publix, maybe. You know, when you get involved in that kind of thing, when you lay that before the Lord, it's wonderful because you've experienced the joy and the freedom of generosity. And it's joys and it's freedom. It really is freeing. And you come to hear the Savior's voice because you're open to that in a whole new area of life. But let's not run past the fact that there's some sacrifice involved in that. There is a denying of what, you know, I mean, I would otherwise do. There's an opportunity cost to you that you have to die to. And it takes courage. Or maybe for you it is suffering itself. God has come to you and he's brought you suffering for mission. Here's how he's going to advance his mission in you. He's going to claim more territory in you or through you to a watching world who needs to see us suffer differently than the rest of the world does. That they might see authentically the reality of the invisible Christ because he's visible in us. And so he's come to you and he said, here, here's cancer or here, here's a wayward child or here, Here's a failing business. Or here, here's a painful marriage. Or here, here's a sin that will not let you go. And I'm not just asking you to endure it, to grit your teeth and get through it. I'm asking you to embrace it even though you don't want it and even though you would love to end it. To embrace it is something that I'm doing in you And it's something that I'm doing through you that is more valuable even than your life if that's what's at stake. And there is sacrifice in that. There is self-denial in that. There is a dying to how, you know, I would much rather have it in that. And as a result, this mission that we're on takes courage. And not the kind of courage that I think the world kind of comes to us with because that's all that... It can come to us with, which is really not courage at all. It's it's denial of fear or it's suppression of fear. It's it's either me saying to myself, okay, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not. I'm trying to convince myself that I'm not something I actually am. Or it's me saying, okay, I actually am afraid, and I don't have any other option but to gut it out, to somehow get myself psyched up to do this, whatever this happens to be. Good grief. I mean, that might work, you know, if you're trying to do a rope swing, in North Carolina like I did not long ago. It was one of those deals where we pulled up in the bus and my 18-year-old daughter jumped in and she did it. And it looked, you know, pretty high from the water. <laughs> I climbed up to the top and I'm going, oh, oh, you know, and my kids are going, "Come on, dad." <laughs> Meanwhile, my daughter's already done it. So what am I going to do? One, two, three, go. No, okay, I'll count again. All right. (laughs) Now, this time I really mean it. One, two. Finally, I mean, I knew I couldn't climb down without killing myself, so I had to go. It might work for that, maybe. It's not going to work for cancer. It's not going to work with a wayward kid. It's not going to work with a painful marriage. It's not going to work with a failing business. It's not going to work with a sin that seems like it'll never let you go. It will not work with financial sacrifice. It won't work with your reputation either. That's not the kind of courage that we need. The kind of courage that we need is the kind of courage that only the gospel can bring. And we've been watching that courage in the life of the Apostle Paul as we've been moving through this study. So, for example, last week we saw how the Holy Spirit of God is driving Paul to leave Corinth and to go to Jerusalem even though the same Holy Spirit is testifying personally and directly to Paul and indirectly to Paul through every different city, every body of believers in every different city that he on this boat pulls into between Corinth and Jerusalem, that what awaits him in Jerusalem is imprisonment and affliction. That's it. So that's what you have to look forward to. So says the infallible voice of God. But he's being driven there nonetheless. Pretty astounding. So what has Paul done? I mean, as we've watched him do this, what, what what has he done? He said, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. He convinced himself he was not afraid. He went to Jerusalem and that was it. No. He said, OK, one, two, three, and I'm going to swing. OK, no, 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 we'll count again. One, two, three. Come on, a girl did this. You can do it. One, two, three. You can do it. Paul went to Jerusalem in the kind of courage that only the gospel can bring. So that's the question then is, okay, well then, what kind of courage is that? I mean, we've seen the results of the courage. He went to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him there and not being disappointed. But how does that emanate from the gospel? What is it about the gospel that should make us to be a courageous people so that we can live our lives as mission, even when that involves, at times, sacrifice or self-denial or dying to ourself, which is a painful, difficult, and glorious thing to do. Well, that's what I want want you to see as we pick up our study today in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 40. It's the last verse in the chapter. And if you did your personal worship this week, which means that if you took the assigned passage and you meditated through it and you journaled through it and you're all teed up for this morning, so you know what happened in chapter 21, then you know that Paul is in fact gone to Jerusalem. You know that Paul made his report regarding his ministry amongst the Gentiles to the Jerusalem church, James and the elders. You know as well, perhaps, that he also delivered, we think, a financial gift to them as an emblem of the solidarity between the Gentile believers now and the Jewish believers in that Jerusalem church. It's an amazing statement. And you know that Paul received advice and the advice was, hey man, the word on the street here in town is that you are out there teaching other Jewish people to disregard the law of Moses and the traditions of our people. And it is very upsetting. So we think that what you ought to do is actually observe one of those traditions, go to the temple, take this vow, do this, do that, pay for these other guys who are doing this or that, so that the people think, oh, no, 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 well, it, cannot, it can't be true about him, because look at what he's doing, and it's a total fail. He goes, and they spot him in the temple, and a riot breaks out, and they drag him into the court of the Gentiles, and they begin literally to beat him to death right there on the spot. And they would have succeeded, but for the intervention of the Roman commander, who sees from the Antonia Fortress, which is on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, or was, what's happening. And he takes his soldiers, and he charge into the crowd, and get to the bottom of this riot, and what's going on? And at the bottom of it is a bleeding... Barely breathing Paul, apparently, because they literally have to carry him up the steps of their fortress to save his life. And as they drag him away from the crowd and help him get up the steps, he he says to them, guys, if you don't mind, I'd like to address this crowd that just tried to kill me. And I want to preach the gospel of God's grace to them. Now, this is not necessarily part of the message, but that's a pretty striking thought. That tells you something about the heart of this guy, Paul, that really ought to be reproduced in my heart and yours. They've just tried to kill him, and he's concerned for their souls. What an imagination this guy has, what faith in the power of the gospel this guy has. He's the one who comes to us in his writing and he says, the thief, the guy who steals and takes by the power of the gospel will become an almsgiver. He will become someone who gives to the poor. You see that? It's a 180. And he believes in that kind of gospel because that's exactly, as we'll see in a second, what happened with him. He was going this way and he met Jesus and then he started going this way. The truth is that ought to be true for all of us. There's a major change of direction when you meet Christ, when He repurposes and re-envisions and reimagines your life. So anyway, Paul says, look, can I talk to these guys? And he receives permission. And then Luke, who personally sees all of this, says this, Acts 21, beginning in verse 40. He says, And when the Roman commander, who had just saved Paul's life by pulling him out of the midst of the crowd and taking him into custody, had given Paul permission to stop and speak with this crowd of people who had just tried to kill him... Paul, standing on the steps of the Antonia Fortress, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush over the crowd, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language, which is very strategic, and it's part of the ways, many ways here, and we'll see them, that he's trying to identify with this group of people. He's saying, hey, listen, guys, I was just like you before I met Jesus. In fact, and he says this very subtly, not directly, he's going to say, look, I was even better at being a Jew than you. You think you're zealous? And you are. Let me rehearse some of my zeal for you. Let me tell you some of the things I did until I met Christ. And absolutely everything changed. Paul motions to the crowd, and then he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, so he's claiming a familial relationship with them. Here, the defense that I now make before you, and Luke standing there, says that when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And Paul said, I am a Jew. Now, I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, so I wasn't born here, he's saying. However, however, I was raised here. I was raised in this very city, brought up in the city and educated at the feet of Gamaliel, whom they all knew to be the foremost teacher of the party of the Pharisees, the group of people who were most zealous for keeping the law of God and to which Paul himself belonged at one time. I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up here. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for our God, as all of you are to this day. In fact, Paul says, I was so zealous for God that I persecuted this way. Now, what is that? We saw this a couple of weeks ago. Christians in that day were called people of the way. What way is that exactly? That's the way of Jesus. And what is the way of Jesus? It's the way of the cross. So now you're getting excited. And what is the way of the cross? It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of death. And also of life. He says, let me tell you something about me. I was so zealous for God and for His law that I persecuted this way. I persecuted Christians, don't miss this, to the death. To the death. Binding and delivering to prison, both men and women, sounds like suffering to me, as the high priest of that temple right behind you guys and the whole council of elders of your people can bear me witness. For from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, which was located northeast of the northernmost outpost of the nation of Israel. Still is, actually. I journeyed even there, he's saying, to take those Christians who were also there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So what does that tell you about Paul? Paul. It tells you that he was so zealous for God's law that he wasn't satisfied merely with wiping out Christianity within the geographical confines of the nation of Israel. I don't know, that's not enough for him, see? He wants to wipe it out, even outside of that. He wants to wipe it out to the ends of the earth. How ironic! Because he then meets Jesus and what happens? Jesus commissions him, he repurposes his life. He does a total 180 on him and he becomes the apostle most zealous for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He goes from being the guy who brings death to Christians to the guy who will, in the end, die for Christ. That's not a little bit of change. Like, that's not subtle. I think he's changed a little. (laughs) Really? And now he tells them and us how that happened. He gives us his testimony which Luke records three times in this one book. So do you think maybe it's important? This is the second of three. And through his testimony, he gives the gospel. People say to me, man, I don't know what I would tell somebody if I was going to talk to them about Jesus. What if you told them what Jesus has done in your life? What if you shared with them how you came to understand that you were a sinner and how the Lord God entered into humanity looking for you. How he opened your eyes to the reality of who you are and who he is and and to your need to be forgiven and made new and made whole and, and filled with his spirit and part of his people and, and full of his wisdom. And here's what that's done in my life. What if you just did that? That's what Paul does. He's given the opportunity and he says, well, you know, let me tell you my testimony. Verse 6, he says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, that is to say in the middle of the day when the sun is at its brightest, a truly great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And that's so awesome if you're thinking about the writings of Luke. And I say that because Luke is an artist. He's not just an author. He's very careful about the way that he constructs every story, every word, every item in both his books, Luke and Acts. So in three places in the book of Acts, he talks about a light shining around someone and it's always the same someone. It's exactly the same story. It's in all three occurrences of Paul's testimony. This again, being the second of the three. So outside of those three occurrences of the same story, we only see it in one other place. We see it in the Christmas story. We see it in the shepherd's field. We see it in the angelic announcement of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And you know this story if you were raised in the church or if you watch every year the Peanuts Christmas special. Why? (laughs) Because they give it to you in the King James. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord, what? shone round about them. A little more enthusiasm would have been helpful. But yes, right answer. And they were sore afraid. They were terrified. As Paul is. We'll see in a second he falls to the ground. But what is Luke saying? He's saying that there is a birth happening here. He is announcing, spiritually speaking, the birth of the Apostle Paul. Jesus comes to us and says, unless a man is a really good person and keeps the law of God and pleases me in everything he does and prays a lot and pays his taxes and, you know, and that rules a lot out. But, you know, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. No. He says, look, unless a person is born again, They cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless the light of the gospel of Christ shines into the darkness of our heart. And this is what light does, guys. It reveals what's hidden in darkness and reveals to us really and truly what's hidden in us, leaving us with nowhere to run. No rationalization that works. No excuse or defense, just silencing all of that. But then revealing also the truth about Jesus. The truth about his gospel. The truth about this life that he repurposes and gives back to us and says, Here, now live it for me and live it this way. It reveals to us the truth about what really to value and also what really to fear. What's really scary in light of the gospel. Because it's a different list, it seems to me, than the list we generally operate from. And so Paul says, as I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus about noon when the sun was at its brightest, a truly great light from heaven suddenly shone all around me, just like the shepherds. And like the shepherds, I fell to the ground, right? And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, which incidentally is just the other name for Paul. So let's just go with Paul, Paul, at least at this point in the narrative. And it matters that the Lord says it twice. It really does, and it mattered to Paul. He got that as a Jew raised in the Old Testament, and so did his audience that he's talking to from the steps of the Antonia Fortress on that day. That would have rung kind of a familiar bell in their hearts and in their minds because they grew up on all the Old Testament stories, and they knew what that meant. It's a sign of love, of oneness, of intimacy, of tenderness. And it's spoken often by God and almost always within the context of suffering. It's interesting. So God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, listen for repetition. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one whom you love. Okay, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take him to the land of Moriah, and I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. So cut his neck, bleed him out, and burn him up. On the mountain, I'll show you when you get there. I'm going to go all in on suffering there. I'm going to say that is gut wrenchingly awful. Sacrifice, self denial, and death. Literally and figuratively. And Abraham, in faith in the resurrection from the dead, that God would raise his son up, it's the only way he could reason by faith, which is the way we're supposed to reason, goes and he takes his son and he builds the altar and they walk up there and he binds his boy and he lays him down and he raises the knife. And is he not weeping at this point? And he's about to cut his son's throat and God stays his hand, he calls out from heaven and what does he say, Abraham? No, he says, Abraham... Abraham, I love you, Abraham, spoken in suffering. What about Moses? He's out in the Midianite desert. He has left Egypt, fled for his life, not planning on going back. He sees the bush, it's burning. Okay, that's odd, you know, so he walks over and God speaks from the burning bush. And what does he say? Moses? No, he says, Moses, Moses. I want you to go back to Egypt, Moses. Say what? Oh, yeah. I want you to go back to the place that you fled for your life. I want you to go in to the courtroom of the most powerful man in the world, and I want you to tell him that what he's going to do next is to let my people go, even though, well, you know, they've been enslaved there for 430 years. There's suffering in that. There's difficulty in that. Moses lived a life of sacrifice and self-denial and of death of all kinds. But it's in that context, that calling, God says, Moses, Moses, I love you, Moses. We see it with David and his son Absalom. David's son Absalom, because he builds this resentment in his heart. He's, He's at odds with his dad, very charismatic guy. Very handsome guy, even, said that he had long, flowing hair. Everybody thought that was awesome. I was riding in the car with my wife the other day, and I said, you know, Carter Brown has long, flowing hair. <laughs> but nobody thinks it's awesome. So... <laughs> nobody. But when Absalom walked into a staff meeting, they were all like, whoa. When Carter walks in, we grab a ukulele and like Tiny Tim, we start singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips, you know, because there's a resemblance there that is not working. All right, let's come back. David's son Absalom, handsome, magnetic, steals the kingdom from his dad. He subversively works against him gathers his own army, his father flees before his own son and leaves Jerusalem to save his life. But in the end, their armies fight it out and David wins. And as Absalom with his long, beautiful, flowing hair is fleeing himself, a son of David, riding on a donkey. Sounds familiar. His hair is caught up in the limb of a tree and the donkey keeps going and a son of David is stuck in a tree. Helpless to get himself off. Does that sound familiar? The son of David is then pierced in the side with a soldier's spear while hanging on the tree. Okay, this is the story of Jesus, is it not? And then they take him down, just like they did Christ. And like they took Jesus and they put his body in a pit and rolled the stone in front, they take this point, Absalom, and they put his body in a pit and they cover it over with stones. And David the father, who is a picture of the father with a capital F. I have chosen for myself a man after my own heart. Where do we see that in the life of David? Here is totally devastated. And he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, that it had been me who died instead of you. Love, context of sacrifice, and even substitutionary atonement in some sense. And that's true for Paul too. Again, he's not just being reborn, he's being repurposed. He has a new mission. And his mission involves sacrifice, self-denial, and death to life as he would choose it. And he's telling these people why he's courageous enough to live it. And he's telling us as well. So he sees the great light and he says that when I saw that great light, I fell to the ground. This is verse seven. And then I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, or Paul, Paul, he's saying, I love you. I'm going to recommission you. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be awesome, however. But I do have a question and here it is. Why are you persecuting me? Of all the confusing things that are happening in this moment, I think in Paul's life, that might have been the most confusing because you know if you're Paul, you're thinking, "What? why am I persecuting you I don 't even know who you are. I have names of people I 'm about to go persecute. I have addresses for them, I have descriptions of them, but none of them are a great big, brighter than the sun heavenly light that speaks. so i 'm pretty sure I'm not persecuting you. I don't even know who you are, which is what he says. in verse eight, he answered, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said to me, and this is the game changer, he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you, what, are persecuting. Oh, you might have not have realized it, but now you do. And I think all kinds of realizations started happening for him in that moment. I think as he worked through this experience, he came to realize a lot of things. I mean, he came to realize, for example, this is kind of a big deal, that the people that he's persecuting who did not keep the law of Moses the way that Gamaliel and the Pharisees and he himself kept it and told everyone they needed to keep it, those people who didn't do those things were actually the true people of the true Messiah. Which means what? That salvation is not found by trying to be a good person and trying to please God and saying all the right things and doing all the right things, or at least, you know, kind of doing your best with that and being a little bit better at it than everybody else. No, it comes by faith in Jesus alone, the only truly good person who has ever lived. The only one who has ever kept God's standards fully, completely. And by the way, that's the only way he'll take it and who lived that life as our substitute in our place to rescue us from all our sin and failures, who washed away our sin with His perfect and infinitely valuable blood, for He's not just a man. He's the God-man. It starts to fall into place for Paul. And I think that Paul learned that, well, since salvation is found outside the law of God, then salvation must also be available to people who are not the traditional people of God. So therefore, it's available to the Gentiles, really to anyone who finds it through faith. And the one who is Christ, I think he learned that since the persecution of Christians is at the same time the persecution of Jesus, and there must be a really profoundly intimate union between Christians and Jesus. And what that means is that when we face sacrifice, when we come to self-denial, when we have to die to ourselves that we might live to him, and that involves pain or difficulty or suffering, which it does... We do not suffer alone, ever. And, you know, that's easy to say when life is going well and everything's kind of cool and, you know, hey, I'm not suffering. We don't suffer alone, you know, and then somebody who's really in the midst of it and you say that to them and they want to punch you in the mouth. Because they're thinking, really, okay, all right, here's the deal. Um, Then explain this. When I got the doctor's report, for example, that said I had cancer, I didn't see the name of Jesus on that. So where is it? And when the police called me for the ninth time about my wayward child, you know, they didn't ask for Jesus. Now, they might have said Jesus' name, but I don't think that's what they meant. When I filed for bankruptcy, my name. When I got served with divorce papers, my name. My name is sacrificed as I took a stand for Jesus in my family, office, dorm, whatever. It's my name on every check I write. And I want to say, no, his name is there too. And you're like, well, where where is that? Right where it says your name. (laughs) Because you and he profoundly, poignantly, mysteriously, fully are one. You just kind of got, got to let that marinate, you know? You've got to take something like that single thought and stop the madness of the rush of life and think about that and all of its implications in your life because it changes everything and it inspires courage. I think that Paul learned as well that the mission of Jesus is advanced. Guess how? Ironically, unexpectedly, and yet really through sacrifice, through self-denial and through suffering because that's what Jesus went through to purchase us. But I think he realized at the same time that that's not how the story ends, because he's visibly looking at the risen Christ himself, which means that it ends in resurrection and glory. And not just for Jesus, but for all of us who are inextricably and intimately linked, one with him through faith in him. Our sacrifices don't end there. Our self-denials don't end there. Our deaths of many kinds don't end there. They end in eternal glory. And I think he learned that eternal glory, that that next life, is actually the one to live for. And that it really and truly is real. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples, and notice the pattern some of the most intimidating verses, I think, in the New Testament, and some of the most exciting, like when you get it. They're really exciting. He says, the Son of Man, so now he's talking about himself. This is Luke 9, 22. He says, the Son of Man must what? He, well, he must suffer things, many things actually, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But then what happens? Because that's not the end. Not for him and not for us. That's the point. He says, and on the third day be raised from the dead. And then Luke writes, and then Jesus said to all, to everyone, it's like his definitive statement on discipleship. He says, if anyone would come after me, would walk my way, would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross it's an instrument of death, isn't it? Sacrifice. How often? Daily. And then follow me. For whoever would, do, whoever would save his life as he would construct it, as he would build it, as he would take his sharpie pen out and in his wisdom write true life and label it, and then pursue it. Whoever would do that, and save it as opposed to die to it and follow me. But whoever would follow that instead, okay, in the end, we'll lose it. But whoever loses his life by dying to it and then living for me will, in the end, save it. And if you think about it, practically speaking, that is exactly the way that it works. And it works this way for everyone. If you live for yourself, if it's all about you and your agenda and goals and plans and mission for you, if that's your life then when you die, what do you lose? You lose everything you've lived for. But if Christ is your life, if it's all about Him and His goals and His project and His mission, then when you die, what do you lose? Nothing. But what do you gain? For forever. You gain everything you've lived for you gain Christ and an infinite share in His infinite and eternal glory. We talked last week and we said, you know, what day are you living for? Is it today? Is it the tomorrow you've imagined and postured your whole life into building to make it the certain way? And, or is it the last day, the day that He returns, the day of His reward, See, it really matters. And it seems to me that that too is the gospel and that it should inspire courage. Paul courageously shares the gospel with this group who sought to kill him. And again, if you did your personal worship, you know that they still sought to kill him even after he was done. And yet, as we'll see in the weeks to come, God will take the suffering of Paul, the rejection of Paul, all of the hostilities toward Paul and use those as the vehicle through which Paul will then get to preach the gospel to the entire leadership of the temple there in Jerusalem, and to governors, to kings. He will use this as the vehicle to drive Paul now all the way to Rome, where the entire imperial guard of, of Caesar himself will get to hear the gospel. And so the mission that Jesus calls us to does involve suffering, and I think we just need to own that. It's a life of sacrifice, self-denial, And death, it is the life in which we find meaning, in which we find purpose, in which we find fulfillment, in which we find satisfaction, in which we find, ironically, all the things we're looking for in everything else and in trying to avoid sacrifice, self-denial, and death. But, it's not easy. And it takes courage. And more than you're gonna need to swing off a rope swing. It takes the kind of courage that emanates from the gospel and that issues out of the fathomless love of Jesus Christ, who, when he calls you to suffer for the sake of his mission, calls your name twice. Twice. It issues out of the safety provided by the fact that we have been fully forgiven and made clean, not through our own failed efforts, but through the prevailing efforts, through the perfect efforts of Jesus brought into the household of God, named as sons and daughters of the King for all of eternity. It issues out of the reality of our intimate connectedness with Jesus who, who takes us very seriously and very personally, who uses our suffering and out of it brings eternal good as he uses it to advance his mission both in and through us, and it issues out of the death-defying truth that we are connected by faith to the master of both life and death, and that death is not the end for us, and in fact, it's the beginning. It's the beginning. There is a day of reward coming, and the call is to live for that day. Those are the people, as Paul says who love the appearing of Jesus. Why? Because there He is. That's everything I've lived for. And it won't disappoint. So I don't know what you guys are facing in life. I really don't. I don't know what exactly, or the particulars at least, of how God wants to use whatever difficulties that you're facing. I don't know what the challenges are that you're looking at and going, man, you know, if I take a stand for Jesus here, this is kind of scary, or... We go ahead and take this step by faith. That's going to be a real big deal. And I don't. But I would challenge you to do something very countercultural today. Go home. Don't watch TV. Put your phone away. And use this day really for the reason and for the purpose for which God designed it as a day of rest and reflection on Him. And take His gospel and begin to think through the implications of it in your life because it is freeing and it inspires the kind of courage that you need to live for Him. And that's true life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that when You call us God, you call our name twice. And I pray that for those of us who just need to hear that today, that we would hear that today. Your wonderful voice speaking deeply in our spirit, personally, not removed from us, but living within us. Let us hear that. God, let us know that when you call us, you don't just forgive us, but you repurpose us. You commission us. We're going one way and you turn us around and say, no, it's the other way. And it's the way of sacrifice and it's the way of self-denial and it's the way of dying to yourself that you might discover what true life really is. Let us live true life. Let us stop pursuing a life that only disappoints in the end. Let us not try to save our life, but rather let us lose it for you and in you truly to find it. Both in this life, as we discover meaning and purpose and significance and fulfillment and a satisfaction that we can't find in anything else. And in the next, Lord, on the day of your reward, let us be people who love your appearing and live for that day. We pray these things for your glory and that your mission might go forward in this city and in this world through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.